Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Spencer Cole. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Vox Royalty, which is a mineral resource royalty and streaming investor. It's an absolutely fascinating discussion coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. What is a mining royalty investment? It's a good question, Toby. So a mining royalty investment really is an income stream uh, over a future production from a certain mine. Uh, typically, they come about when a certain prospector discovers a certain gold deposit, but they don't have $200 million to actually build the mine themselves. So the, the bigger mining company will buy that new discovery for a small amount of cash up front. Then they'll give them a, a mining royalty contract that says that prospector gets 1% or 2% of all the future revenue from that that potential mine so and then that 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 royalty stream that is a contract that can then be on sold to an investment company such as vox i see a lot of uh mining companies particularly that list in australia they'll often that that is all that they have that single uh royalty stream and it's a farm in or farm out of some sort of arrangement that they have how do you um how do you find these opportunities Sure. So we apply, I guess you could call it a, a big data approach to, to finding these royalties. So over the last 10 years, we've been constructing the world's largest proprietary uh, database of mining royalties. Um, and so we use that to, to sort of screen for um, mining royalties around the world. And often we're able to find them in the most unlikely of places. So for example, we bought one uh, gold royalty from an automotive company Um we bought another iron ore royalty from a telecommunications company. Um, so, you know, we often try and target unconventional holders of these mining royalty contracts because obviously just, you know, they're non-core for that, that, that person or that, that company. And, you know, we can acquire them for, for deep value. How do they come to, how does an auto company or a telco come to get uh, a royalty like that? So typically those types of companies used to be listed mining explorers um, and they may have sold out of certain mining properties that have subsequently gone on to be you know, spectacularly successful from an exploration and, and development perspective. And so those companies are then hollowed out as, as listed shells. And then when a new company, call it a telco or a hearing aid company, which was another one we did a royalty deal with, when that new management team comes in, they drop in a new business. It turns out that listed company still holds this really interesting mining royalty. So we get into this interesting situation, Toby, where we knock on their door and we say, we're here to buy that mining royalty you hold. And often these management teams say, we don't own a mining royalty. We're a hearing aid company. And so it's a weird negotiation where we have to convince the company that they actually own this asset um, before we you know, put them in, make them an offer. So how is it that you know that they have the royalty and the company doesn't know? 
yeah, I mean, no fault to the, the management teams that, that I was sort of re- referencing earlier. Um, you know, often when you acquire a shell company, there's only so much due diligence you can do. Um, and, you know, in, in one of the cases, one of those companies actually said to us, they said, thank God, you know, this is a, a surprise on the upside. Most of the surprises with this shell company have been liabilities that we, we, we missed. So it's, you know, a, a lot of these royalty contracts, they aren't centrally documented. Um, they're often just a geologist puts them in the bottom drawer and then, you know, 10 years, 10 years later when the mines actually come into production, um, you know, it's only sort of obsessive groups like us that have built this big database and, and combed through decades worth of data who actually can trace this, uh, this royalty through. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's no fault of those management teams, I should say. So how are you tracking it down? Is there some, are you, are you, do you need to go to the, uh, some sort of government department and look at the tenements or something like that? How does that work? Yeah, so we, so we start with our, with our proprietary database. And so we'll see in the database, um, uh, actually, I'll, I'll give you a worked example. So September um, uh, last year, we acquired a, a royalty on um, a, gold, a gold mine in Western Australia. Um, we initially got intelligence uh, from our colleague in Perth that this certain mining company that's based in Canada was applying for new mining concessions or mining leases um, over this large area of land. So we went into our database and to, to, to identify were there any historical royalties over those new mining areas. Um, and then we verified that against the, the government mining database. And so sure enough, we saw a 1992 legacy sort of forgotten royalty. Um, and then within a space of two weeks, you know, we were able to acquire that royalty. Um, and then within sort of three months, uh, that, that, that royalty area was being mined. So we're, we're cross-checking against our own database with also various sort of government mining, um, uh, mining databases as well. You're, you're the CIO of Vox Royalty, which is a really interesting um, play on this thing because you you don't have the you don't have the investment of a traditional miner, but you have some of the advantage of the upside of the. You know, so if any of those commodities start to run, you'll do quite well. So, um, what's the what's the history of royalty investing, and uh, how do you find yourself in this position? Sure. Um, so it's a, it's a niche industry, Toby, that has sort of grown on steroids over the past 20 years. Um, some of the first royalty deals ever done were back in the mid-1980s. Uh, the most famous royalty deal in history was actually uh, a company called Franco Nevada that really, they're the grandfathers of the whole industry. In 1986, uh, they saw a small ad in, in a local newspaper in um, Elko in Nevada that uh, a salty old prospector was was selling a, a gold royalty, and um, they ended up buying that royalty for two million dollars. Um, now, fast forward to today, um, that was in 1986. That royalty that they bought for two million dollars has has generated over a billion dollars of revenue to them, and the, the the net present value of the future royalty revenue is still north of a billion dollars. So from wow, that $2 million wow. investment from that salty prospector, um, that's become one of the world's largest gold mines. You know, they've mined in excess of 50 million ounces of gold. Um, so I guess that that sort of shows you the leverage that you can get 
when you make the right investments in mining royalties. And, and since that, that fateful investment in 1986, um, the industry sort of really caught fire about 20 years ago. Um, and so in the last 20 years, it's gone from basically a $2 billion industry of, that had basically five, uh, you know, four or five players to today, it's a $70 billion industry um, with 30 listed uh, mining royalty investment companies. So it's, um, you know, it's, and it's been the best way to play commodities um, across any asset class um, compared to mining companies, in indices, uh, equity indices, or actually the physical metal itself. Royalty companies have outperformed all of those commodity linked benchmarks for the last uh, 20 years. Why do you think that is? So I think part of the key reason is that a royalty and, and by extension, a royalty investment company gives you all of the upside that a mining, a mining company gives you. So exploration success, you know, when you find the new Bonanza um, gold deposit, um, you know, production increase. So when they increase production, therefore revenue, also price uh, upside. So as commodity prices run, particularly in like an inflation environment that we find ourselves in today, royalties give you all of that upside. Um, but importantly, you've got capped downside because with a royalty, your first investment in is your last dollar in. So you're not, you're not exposed to operating costs, capital cost overruns when you're building a mine, which often happens. So you've got none of that downside that mining companies typically have and all of the upside that mining companies offer you. So I think it's that asymmetric um, leverage uh, that, that, that royalty companies sort of, that causes them to outperform. Uh, what's your background, Spencer? So I'm, I'm a mining engineer and uh, I say a, a reformed investment banker. Um, uh, those, those days are, uh, you know, no offense to investment bankers listening in, but uh, they're behind me. Um, and about six years ago, I co-founded a business called Mineral Royalties Online, um, and we we sort of developed the world's largest proprietary royalty database, and then vended that into Vox Royalty. So I teamed up uh, with the Vox team about uh, three years ago, um, and since then, you know, we've we've led the entire royalty industry in terms of our growth. We've done more deals than any other company in our seventy billion dollar industry. So you developed some expertise in finding these royalties globally, created a database of these opportunities, and then that database has been vended into Vox where you're now the CIO. And so you've got a pretty good idea where everything is around the world, where to look for them at least. Yeah, absolutely, Toby. And it's one part of it is, is where to look. Um, the other part is actually how to get in front of some of these salty old prospectors um, you know, we deal with with prospectors all the time that this may shock shock you to hear, but some of them don't even have an email address. Um, you know, some of Lucky these people, bastards. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, so for example, recently, uh, two months ago, we did a deal with some some cattle ranchers in Nevada, um, you know, a family that held this, this, this fantastic gold royalty. And, you know, these aren't individuals that you can just go to the phone book and, and look up. So, one part is sort of identifying the royalty in a database. And then the second part is, you know, having agents on you know, boots on the ground that can sort of augment that by getting in front of, of people in sort of off the beaten path areas. 
So when you're when you're you find an opportunity, how do you uh, value an opportunity? How do you validate it? What's your process? Sure. So a lot of the, the, the core of what we do in terms of due diligence is really technically informed. So our team at Vox has two, two mining engineers and two geologists. Um, you know, statistically, mining is a very difficult business to make money in. Most discoveries are never built into mines and most mines that are built, you know, historically lose money. So to actually identify a new discovery and say, yes, this has the key, you know, the, the secret source to be a profitable mine. Statistically, it's very difficult. So that all starts with technical evaluation of, of the, the deposit, you know, the geology, um, the engineering, you know, can you actually extract the rock at an economic level? Um, the country and the, and the, the community, um, is this community supportive of, of a new mine? And will this government, um, you know, be true to their word around the fiscal regime? Um, and then, you know, once we've done technical due diligence and sort of fiscal or economic due diligence, then we have a, um, our general counsel does, you know, legal due diligence because ultimately we're not buying mines. We're buying contracts that are sort of derivatives of mines. So we need to be damn sure that the piece of paper we're buying um, is fully enforceable uh, in the event that things go go awry. So for the most part, these these aren't operating mines. These are just deposits. And so you have to make an assessment about the viability of the deposit and the other things that you've just mentioned then. And you're 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 providing some money which does go towards development, or are you does that that's simply to buy the uh, the royalty stream, and then you then you need to find a partner, or there's an operating partner, or, or how does that work? Yeah, so that's an important question. Um, there, there's two ways that royalties are typically created in the mining industry. One is, as I described before, the prospector is rewarded for their discovery, and they get a free royalty for selling out of the, the early stage discovery. The other way, um, which we call origination, is a form of, as a form of project finance. So if you're a mining company that's building a mine and let's say you're tapped out on equity and you're pre-revenue, so you can't you know, put a lot of leverage against the project, um, you might sell a new royalty to finance that last bit in the capital stack where if you need 10 mil, 20 mil, you know, just to get that, the mine into production, you can sell a new royalty um, over that mine. We've back-tested, you know, over 40 years of royalty deals and over 600 separate transactions. And historically, the, the, the royalty deals with the most alpha or, you know, outperformance have been buying existing royalties from the likes of prospectors and explorers. So we're firm, firmly focused on that part of the equation. So we're not funding the construction of new mines. Um, we're essentially creating a liquidity event for prospectors and explorers, you know, who need to rebalance their own um, wealth and their own portfolio um, to, to, to other areas. Do you have a preference for the underlying metal or commodity? So we, so we have 51 royalty investments um, that are, are all around the globe. Um, we're 70% weighted towards precious metals and particularly gold and then to a lesser extent, silver and, and platinum group metals. Um, the other 30% of our, our portfolio is, is sort of opportunistically weighted across the commodity spectrum. So we have exposure to about 20 different metals um, and those 30% um, sort of non-precious metal investments 
they're across you know base metals um, that are, often have a, a linkage to the electrification thematics such as you know copper and nickel um, and then you know some lithium exposure as well um, but yeah it's 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 sort of we are a precious metal focused royalty company um, and that's that's probably for two key reasons Toby one is um, you know from a macro perspective we really love the fundamentals of you know for the gold price at the moment particularly with inflation and how it is at the moment. But the other aspect, which is probably a less obvious aspect, is when you look at the technical risks of, say, a simple open pit gold mine versus a more complicated zinc or copper or, you know, a, a mine that needs a lot more sort of has higher processing complexity. Um, you know, if you're making risk-based capital allocation decisions, you're going to go with the mine that has the lower risk which is often, you know, gold mines over other mines. Uh, let's talk about inflation a little bit. And then let's talk about that in the context of those, uh, those precious metals. So wh what are your thoughts on inflation at the moment? Why do you think that inflation is likely to tick up? Because there has been a, a, a debate of an ongoing debate about this is transitory. It doesn't look like it's going to continue on, or this is, this is the real thing and it's going to persist. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, one that we sort of, um, we, we discuss around the, the proverbial water cooler quite a bit. Um, I guess, you know, when we look at from a, from a consumer perspective, whether you're looking at, you know, lumber prices, used car, uh, used car sales and, and, you know, the lack of availability in used cars or, um, you know, a lot of sort of common, you know, consumer-based inflation um, indices and metrics, um, it seems hard hard to imagine that's going to unwind in a hurry. Um, and certainly, you know, when we look at the, the fiscal stimulus out of the US, um, you know, and the fact that when you look at some of the core sort of economic growth metrics, it, it doesn't feel as if there's, there's a, you know, an immediate end in sight to that, that wave of new money being pumped into the system. So, um, you know, we're not macroeconomists uh, macro uh, at the end of the day. So we don't have a crystal ball, but certainly, you know, a lot of those simplistic metrics that, that, that hit the consumer in the face that we look at um, point to the fact that certainly in the medium term, precious metals are, are going to be pretty well supported. So let's talk about precious metals specifically. So what, why gold has been that gold had that incredible run through to 2011 or so, and then it's been, uh, sideways and choppy since then. So why do you think now is a good time for gold? Look, I think, you know, gold has this sort of X factor to it. It's It's been the most explored for commodity. It's probably been the most coveted, you know, physical substance on, on, on the planet's history. Um, and so there is this sort of intangible X factor to it that, particularly obviously in, in, you know, when there's a, a flight to, to quality and, and when there's any sort of instability, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, China, uh, China's sort of rumblings in, about what they're doing in the, the South China Sea, or if it's, um, you know, food and water shortages in parts of the Middle East, um, or, you know, floods in, in China, Germany, you name it, um, you know, a lot of this sort of insecurity and, and um, uh, you know, people continuously come back to gold. And sure, we've seen we've seen a huge amount of, of, of I guess, speculation around around crypto um, and specifically Bitcoin. But I think when you think about 
large liquid stores of value um, that have historically been safe haven assets. Um, gold has you know, been the top of the list for decades. Um, so to your point around the relative performance of the gold price, yes, you know, it has traded sideways um, over, over the last, you know, call it a couple of years. Um, but still, I guess, from our perspective, um, you know, we, we, ha we have both leverage linked to the commodity price. So whether the gold price goes up or even if the gold price goes down, but importantly, we also have huge operating leverage. So, you know, gold companies, as they make new discoveries and as they bring, you know, exploration projects into production, we get the benefit of that across all of our 51 royalties. So, you know, even if the gold price does come off 20%, um, you know, we've got, we're, we've got sort of a number of new royalty assets that are start, starting to um, cash flow. So some of that, that, that sort of potential, the downside in, in commodity prices or gold price is going to be well insulated and exceeded by um, some of the incremental royalties that are starting to cash flow for us. No doubt you've got a preference for some performance out of gold, but do you need the gold price to sort of do anything to generate reasonable returns? No, importantly, Toby, like we don't, we don't, um, when we run sort of commodity price assumptions during due diligence, we'll never use sort of pie in the sky estimates. Um, you know, we price our deals on the basis of, you know, mean reversion for pretty much every commodity that we look at. Um, so, you know, we'll never buy a, a 10, 20 year investment um, on the basis of spot pricing. Um, that's just the quickest way to book an impairment next quarter and, uh, you know, make your auditors unhappy. So uh, we use very uh, conservative commodity price assumptions. So it's not based on the existing spot price. You base it on what you... It, in, in the event that that is spiked, you base it on where you expect it to sort of return to or its longer run average? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we look at, say, consensus estimates around um, different commodity prices. Um, so if you take the gold price, for example, I think spots around uh, 1800 um, at the moment, you know, most, most commodity um, analysts ex expect that you know, long-term, it, it mean reverts to around 1500, 1550 thereabouts. So, um, you know, when we're looking at new royalty in investments, you know, we'll be in, we invest in mines that are, are competitive from a, a cost perspective, you know, well below even $1,500. Um, you know, where recently, in, four months ago, we made an investment um, uh, in, a, in a mine called Otto Bohr, and um, that's the, the third lowest cost um, gold mine in, in Australia. Um, it, it's, it's, it feeds another operation called Thunderbox. So, you know, these are, these are mines that will be, you know, cost competitive, even if the, the gold price dropped by, you know, 40, 30 or 40%. And how do, you, how do you think about valuation? Are you looking for some sort of uh, yield? Is there, is there a P ratio for the... Uh, for the royalties how does that work sure so it's a really interesting nuance between say mining companies and royalty companies so most mining companies you know depending on where you are in the commodity cycle they'll trade it between you know call it five to eight times earnings generally um, royalty companies typically trade at, at anywhere from 30 to 50 times um, earnings which, you know, for some people, particularly generalist investors coming into the industry, they sort of sit there scratching their heads and say, how the, why the hell would I pay, you know, 40 times for this, 
um, you know, for this royalty company. But, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned before and the fact that, you know, a royalty company, say, take Franco Nevada, it's a $28 billion royalty company. It's run by 30 people. Um, so, you know, the operating cost profile and, and the leverage you've got to future investments is just, you know, this huge uh, sort of operating leverage. Um, but, you know, moreover, like every time a new discovery is made, they get all that upside without a single extra dollar out the door. So, you know, going back to your question, how do we value royalties and, and how a royalty companies valued? You know, they're typically valued on like a price to cash flow or, or price to earnings multiple basis. Um, and then also, you know, the other metric that's commonly used is sort of price to NAV, because the other quirk about a lot of royalty companies is they'll trade at a premium, a substantial premium to their intrinsic net asset value. So if you run a, a, a discounted cash flow model of all of their key royalties, um, they'll trade at sometimes between 1.5 to three times that intrinsic value, often because there's just a lot of these these mines just continue to to, to expand um, over over multi decades. It makes total sense because most of the royalty is falling through to the bottom line. It's it's open for you to reinvest it, whereas in a mining company that's being chewed up on the way through. So it's that makes total sense. I sort of meant more. How do you think about the actual royalty itself when you buy a royalty? Is there I mean, how do you, how do you, what, what's the basis for making a valuation for something like that? Yeah, sure. Sorry. Uh, apologies. My previous. No, it was fascinating. It was fine. But I just, 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 just for my own interest. Yeah, sure. So we'll, so it, within our 51 investments um, in our portfolio, um, we have five producing assets. Um, and then we have a further 16 assets that are, I, I guess, development stage, which have some level of engineering study that have been, has been done on them. Um, and then the, the balance of the approximately 30 royalties are exploration stage royalties. So when we approach a new royalty, um, typically, we'll, you know, we have a bias and a preference for, for something that has some level of engineering study done on it. So whether that's a pre-feasibility or a feasibility study, um, and then what we'll do is we'll apply, you know, a, a discounted cash flow approach to it, but then we'll overlay a series of, of incremental risks on that. So we'll say, you know, we'll run something like a risk tree, for example, and say, what are the, the three or four or five binary risk events that will determine the success of this, this, mine, this mine or this project? And so, for example, what's the probability that um, this mine gets funded? What's the probability that the community approves the environmental licenses? What's the probability that the government tries to steal this mine? Um, and then we'll use our, our team's experience and then occasionally bring in, you know, third-party sort of subject matter experts to price those specific risk events so that what we're left with is a risk-adjusted return profile of cash flows that we expect um, from that, that royalty investment. You've got this... Uh profile at the moment where you've got certain exposure to gold and the other the other uh, metals is that um is that intentional or is that just a it's opportunistic you take what you what you can find at the time and so that's possible that that could evolve over time or is that something that you're going to try to sustain that exposure to gold and so on as it is at the moment yes so it's something that is quite deliberate so in our proprietary royalty database we have almost 8,000 royalties in there. And so 
we can we can change our sort of targeted um, lens um, towards different commodity groups and different countries at will. Um, the reality is, you know, a large part of our sort of our overweighting towards gold is because, as I mentioned before, gold has been the most explored for commodity in history, and so every time um, a, a mining project is sold and a royalty is created. A lot of it's a function of how many of those of those projects have been sold. So, out of our eight thousand royalties, the majority of it, those royalties are gold royalties because that's the the most sort of common project being explored for and sold for royalties. So, part of it's just a function of how many gold royalties there are out there. But we are, you know, you know, as I said, we we're precious metals weighted, but opportunistic outside of that. We have had some of our investors have come to us and said, hey. You know, we see you've got some of these other royalties. We don't really like those commodities, um, so you know, uh, we're not really investing in you for that exposure to some of these metal, these niche metals like graphite, for example. So, three three months ago, we entered into a deal, um, a partnership deal, where we basically um, are, we we are selling two of our non-core um, royalties that are in graphite. Um, and we're selling it to a, a, a smaller royalty company that is firmly focused on battery metals, so which graphite is a key component of. So that was an example where we rebalanced our portfolio away from graphite because you know we weren't really getting much value from the market um, for, for our graphite royalties, and you know we could we could see that the value is going to be unlocked by putting them into a, a much more nimble and um, a, a smaller royalty company. When you think about uh, the concentration that you have, not necessarily to the metal itself, but to individual um, royalties, how, how do you think about, I mean, what's the, what's the largest you'd be prepared to hold uh, in your portfolio as a proportion of your portfolio is what I mean? Yeah, this this point around concentration risk is a really interesting one, Toby, and, and it's something that that we um, we really sort of focus on quite acutely um, because you know we so we've allocated about just over thirty million dollars to create this you know hundred million dollars of market value um, in, in our portfolio across that sort of thirty odd million that we've allocated. Um, you know, the ticket size has varied per investment. Um, at, the, at the upper end, it's it's been sort of call it four to six million, um, but the you know, the average deal size has been probably closer to you know between two fifty and seven fifty thousand. Um, and you know we've looked at a number of, of larger royalty deals, deals that would be sort of twenty to forty million dollar ticket sizes. Um, but ultimately, we never want to be overly exposed to one asset and one mining company. Um, you know, we've just seen too many times in the past where a certain mine has operational disruptions or the certain mining company goes bankrupt and, and all of a sudden, if all your eggs are over allocated to that basket, um, you know, all of a sudden your, your portfolio returns are impacted. So um, the short answer to your question would be, you know, I don't think we would ever allocate more than call it, you know, 50% or, or probably closer to 25% of our, our, our total portfolio size to one asset. Um, so, you know, if we found a spectacular royalty investment that was was quite large, we'd be happy to break it up with one of our peers to ensure that, you know, we're not overly exposed to that one asset. 
I saw when you first contacted me, I saw you were Vox royalty and streaming, and I didn't initially think that that was going to be a uh, a mining royalty. So what what's what, what's what's the basis for the terms royalty and streaming? What's the difference between those two things? Sure. So they're they're two different um, different commodity investments, um, but quite you know I guess related cousins. Um, a, a royalty is is typically a, a, an upfront percentage of future revenue um, or profit. So you make a one-off investment to acquire the royalty, and then you sit back and you get checks, you know, as as production um, uh, occurs. A, a metal stream is a different type of, of commodity um, linked investment. So with a, a metal stream, typically um, you'll, you'll pay a certain amount upfront to acquire the stream, but then on an ongoing basis, You'll be you'll get paid a certain percentage of that metal being produced out of that mine, um, and then you'll also refund them a percentage of their operating costs. So, what's very common is is for example, if you've got a copper mine that might produce let's say hundred million dollars of copper a year, and then it produces ten million dollars of, of of gold a year as sort of a byproduct metal. Often, a company will come along and they'll say, "I want to buy." 50% of all the future gold that comes out of your copper mine. And so you might that company might buy the metal streaming contract for say, you know, $20 million today. And then with every ounce that's mined, um, they get 50% of all the ounces and they might pay a pre-agreed percentage of operating costs. So 20% of their operating costs. So it's it's, I guess, you know, a related cousin to, to royalties, but the key difference is there's an ongoing sort of OPEX, you know, reimbursement, whereas with royalties, your upfront investment is, is your last investment. So what was, what was the experience like going from being a startup, uh, basically operating an online um, database to being acquired by a listed company uh, in the States? Oh, sorry, in, in Canada, rather. Sure. So it was um, it was an interesting journey, to be perfectly frank. Um, you know, we were we were using that database as sort of we were, I guess, market makers or creating a marketplace for mining royalties. Um, and then you know we've been approached by a number of different uh, investment funds and, and principal investors to basically you know acquire our business and our intellectual property. Um, when we when we first met the Vox team back in sort of mid 2018, um, you know there was there was sort of an alignment of values and alignment of vision as to how you know both the commodity um, and, and mining industries were evolving, and then also the implications that, that would have for the the royalty industry. So, you know, we saw the value of what we'd created in our intellectual property, and you know we wanted to ensure that. You know, we were basically unlocking the maximum amount of value out of that by choosing the right partner to, to vend that intellectual property into. Um, and the Vox team, you know, they're fun fun group of people, and and we saw the world in it through similar sort of lens. But it we started working together initially, you know, sourcing opportunities, and then once we realised that you know we could work really well together. Um, then we entered into an agreement to basically formally sort of vend in our intellectual property for equity. Um, and importantly, um, my partner and I, uh, Rian, we didn't want to take a single dollar off the table uh, when we sold that intellectual property. We said, we see the value of what, you know, this database and what within Vox can create. 
And so we said, we only want to take equity and moreover, we'll, we, we want to invest more into the IPO um, when we went public May of last year. The idea of the uh, mining royalty database is really clever. How did, how did you come up with that? So it, it really stems back about sort of 10, 10 odd years ago. Um, my partner, Rian, who's a South African Australian um, exploration geologist, um, uh, he and I actually first met at, at BHP, um, you know, the world's largest mining company, when we were both working there. And we kept running into seeing forgotten royalties that, you know, were basically value was being destroyed because people had forgotten about them, um, you know, both at BHP and then at other mining companies as well. And as time and time again, we kept seeing these damn royalty agreements that people had forgotten about, you know, in some cases, you know, we saw, we saw multiple royalties where people were owed tens of millions of dollars and they didn't even realize it. Um, so that, that sort of planted the seed of an idea to say, well, how many other companies or individuals out there have got these extremely valuable royalty contracts, but you know, they're either, they've either forgotten about them or they don't have a marketplace or they don't know how to actually monetize them. Um, so that planted the seeds of an idea for us to basically say, let's do a really wholesale global search to see how many of these, these royalties are out there. And so we reviewed like tens of thousands of public filings, you know, using sort of OCR and, and sort of smart techniques. Um, and then we also, we also went to a number of different mining departments and, and private groups to aggregate terabytes worth of private exploration data, essentially looking for any free text reference to a mining royalty and then geo-referencing it against the underlying mining claims that it covered. Um, so it was. It turned into a bit of an obsession, to be honest, Toby. And uh, it, at times, you know, when we were sort of sifting through physical like boxes of data in, in dusty storerooms, Rihanna and I would look at each other and say, "What the hell are we doing here?" But um, fast forward a couple of years on, and you know, the value of what we've you know, painstakingly built over 10 years is, is really, you know, unlocking value for our Fox shareholders. So how does a uh, investment banker miner come to develop those skills in uh, optical OCR, optical character recognition? Um, look, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I love learning new skills and I'm quite a curious mind. And, um, you know, I've been, been fortunate to, to, collaborate with a number of other startups, you know, tech startups, and just seeing, I guess, stepping outside of the mining industry, which can be a little bit draconian at times. Um, and you see how people are using, you know, uh, various forms of cutting edge technology to, you know, make new, create new solutions and unlock value, um, you know, whether it's machine learning or, um, you know, you name the technology um, and then applying these, even at a very basic level to the mining industry, is just still is ripe for disruption. Um, we just saw the, the 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 value of that use case instantly. Um, but yeah, a lot of it just comes back to just searching a lot of stuff on YouTube and and googling a lot of stuff. Really, yeah, that's the best way to do it. That's so right. what's the what's the future hold for Vox? What's the what's the plan of the next the immediate term and the longer term plan? Sure. So we we currently have fifty one royalties. Um, the one, one uh, important thing for us over the coming quarters is really just revenue growth. 
So when we went public um, May of last year, um, one criticism was, hey, Vox, you've only got one producing royalty. Um, you've got all these earlier stage royalties, but you know, I can't really get that excited for one producing royalty. And we said, well, hey, just li listen, you know, we're value hawks. And so we won't ever overpay for royalties, but where we consistently find the deepest value is royalties that are between three to 24 months away from first production. And so we said that from day one to our investors. And so even just in the last 12 months, we've organically, we've gone from one producing royalty now to five producing royalties. And then we expect, you know, we, we, we're on track to end next year north of 10 producing royalties, just with what we've got in the portfolio. So naturally, uh, you know, analysts expect our revenue to increase exponentially. Um, and analysts have our, our, our top line revenues growing considerably over the, over the coming quarters. Um, so I think the key thing for us uh, as Vox Management in the next 12 to 18 months is just demonstrating that revenue growth and sort of delivering on what we've said uh, we would uh, to, to investors, particularly when we went public. Um, beyond that, I guess, in the, the medium to long term, um, you know, particularly as we start generating, you know, considerable amounts of free cash flow, you know, we're, we're looking at the best way to return that to investors. So we have an ongoing buyback program that we're actively, um, uh, that we're actively executing on. We will look at dividends. Um, you know, a number of our investors have asked us to consider a US listing. So that's something we're, we're actively working on. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, you know, we've got a number of options in front of us. Either we can become a, a huge dividend payer, um, you know, or at a certain point in time, you know, if, if one of our larger peers wants to wants to acquire us, um, you know, we we serve at the behest of shareholders. And you know, we're, when we see a, a, a deal that truly you know values us fairly, um, you know, we'd we'd be open to it. Spencer, it's a fascinating idea, uh, really cleverly executed. If, um, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you, how do they go about doing that? Sure. So our, I recommend they go to our website, um, so voxroyalty.com, um, or if they want to email me directly, I may regret this, but um, uh, spencer at voxroyalty.com. Um, we love hearing from, from shareholders, both current and prospective Vox shareholders. Um, but yeah, our, our website has a lot of our, our key information on it, Toby. Thank you very much, Spencer Cole, Vox Royalty. Thanks, Toby.